podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Tuesday, the 18th of July. We are marching through July. It's it's stupid how quickly this year is going. If somebody could slow it down, that would be fantastic. Anyway, Nostalgia Merchant here again to go through the 2000-2001 Premier League season. Yet another very good season, all told, in the Barclays Premier League as it was. And some really, really outstanding overperformances from a couple of teams, and we'll get into them. So let's start off, as we do, with the teams this year. So obviously, Wimbledon, 
Sheffield Wednesday and Watford were all relegated at the end of last season. Coming up, Charlton Athletic, Manchester City and Ipswich Town. Charlton had been in the division, got relegated and now back up. City obviously had been in the division, got relegated, went to what we now call League One and worked their way back up. And Ipswich Town returning after a five-year gap. So, again, with the stadiums, Charlton is the Valley. You'll have heard me talk about the Valley before. Really good stadium. If you get the chance, go to a game at the Valley. City at Main Road, which no longer exists. Main Road was a fantastic stadium. A proper place to go and watch football. And when City played at Main Road, that place was packed week after week after week, regardless of what division they were in. They were in League One, and they were selling out. So when we talk about City and plastic fans and the empty hat and all this kind of stuff, it's worth remembering City do have a proper old school, hardcore fan base. It's been with them through thick and thin. But they have got these Klingons now, these guys that latch on to clubs that are successful. United got loads of them. Chelsea got loads of them. Liverpool got a lot of them over the years. And now City have them. And they're not real football fans. They're just not. They don't watch football. They watch comps. And then they make stupid arguments on the internet like Ederson is better than Allison and stuff like that. That's basically the best way to spot them. Their actual knowledge of the game is in the toilet. I've seen people ask City these plastic City fans and beforehand with plastic Chelsea fans to name their five favorite, the five greatest players in club history, and they will always name five recent players. And then I've seen people say, well, what about Francis McCarthy? And they'll go, oh, yeah, legend, but before my time. And then there was no Francis McCarthy. This player didn't exist. He's just a figment of somebody's imagination. But they don't know their own club's history. How would they know the history of the game? But back to the point, City, back in the day, did have a great fan base. And when Main Road was bouncing, it was a fantastic place to go and watch a game. Moving on then to Ipswich Town, Portman Road, still their ground. One of the more charming grounds left in English football. Not quite what it was because they've modernized a little bit at both ends, but still a great place to go and watch a game. Great atmosphere. You're real tight to the pitch there as well. The old school tearing on the main stand, the narrow run on the other side. It's really, really good. Um, though I would prefer Carroll Road of the two because of the the red brick. I've just always had a thing about red brick. Um, right. So managers, uh, what have we got? We've got Martin O'Neill left Leicester City to go and join Celtic and Peter Taylor came in as his replacement. Taylor had been working with the England underage teams and was seen as somebody that was ready for a big opportunity. Paul Jewell left Bradford City in the Premier League to go to Sheffield Wednesday, who'd just been relegated. He was replaced by Chris Hutchings. Hutchings, sorry. 
Um, Jean-Luc Vialli would be sacked a month into the season and replaced by Claudio Ranieri. And obviously Ranieri's tenure at Chelsea runs into the Roman Abramovich era. Um, More on that in a couple of days. But Claudio coming in was seen as a bit of a coup. Vialli, they'd had Hoddle, Hullet, Vialli, player managers. Now they were getting a real manager. And Chelsea were seen as a team that might be able to step forward. Little did we know how perilous their financial situation was at the time, but that would all come to light. Uh, Chris Hutchings was sacked in November after only five months in the job. He was replaced by Stuart McCall. McCall was then replaced by Jim Jeffries. McCall was the caretaker for a fortnight. George Graham was sacked by Spurs in March, replaced by Glenn Hoddle. Hoddle left Southampton and was replaced there by Stuart Gray. And just as the season was coming to a close, Harry Redknapp resigned as West Ham manager in what was a very big shock to a lot of people at the time. And Glenn Roder took over as the caretaker. So our managers to end the season, Wenger at Arsenal, John Gregory at Villa, Jim Jeffries at Bradford, Alan Kerbishley, talked about him before. I, I still don't understand why he went out of management after the West Ham job and never came back in. Claudio Ranieri at Chelsea, Strachan at Coventry, Jim Smith at Derby, Walter Smith at Everton, George Burley at Ipswich, David O'Leary with Leeds, Peter Taylor with Leicester, Jared Houllier with Liverpool, Joe Royal with Manchester City, Alex Ferguson with Manchester United. Um, Middlesbrough did a weird thing where they brought in Terry Venables to work alongside Brian Robson. Venables had obviously been England manager. Robson had been at Middlesbrough for a long time. I think they thought that the pairing would help. It didn't really. Um, Bobby Robson at Newcastle. Stuart Gray at Southampton. Peter Reid at Sunderland. Glenn Hoddle at Spurs and Glenn Roder at West Ham. So foreign managers, the group is growing. We've now got three high-level foreign managers or, or perceived to be high-level. Captains, Tony Adams at Arsenal, Gareth Southgate at Aston Villa, Stuart McCall at Bradford, Mark Kinsella at Charlton, Dennis Wise at Chelsea, Mustafa Hadji at Coventry, Daryl Powell at Derby, Dave Watson still captain of Everton, Matt Holland at Ipswich, Lucas Radaby at Leeds, Matt Elliott at Leicester, Jamie Redknapp at Liverpool, Alf Inga Haaland at Manchester City, Roy Keane at Manchester United, Paul Ince for Middlesbrough, Alan Shearer for Newcastle, Matt Letizia for Southampton, Michael Gray for Sunderland, Saul Campbell at Spurs, and Steve Lomas for West Ham. Kit manufacturers, Nike start to make some moves. So they would had Arsenal, and that had been their only team for many years. But in this season, 2000-2001, they also have Leeds United and Sunderland. Diodora, first time we see them, they make the kits for Aston Villa this season. Essex at Bradford City, and that was their only club that season. Lecoq Sportif at Charlton Athletic, at Leicester City, and at Manchester City. Umbro, still going strong. We've got Chelsea. We've got Manchester United. So they lose a big one in Everton. 
CCFC garments. Again, Coventry seem to be making their own kits. I'm not sure what the logic behind that was. Uh, Puma, Derby, Everton. And that's it. Uh, a company called Punch, who I don't know, made the kits for Ipswich. Liverpool were with Reebok. Middlesbrough with Iria. Adidas had Newcastle and Tottenham Hotspur. Southampton's kits were self-made through a company called Saints. And Fila with West Ham. Front of shirt sponsors. Uh, still the Sega Dreamcast for Arsenal. NTL with Aston Villa. JCT 600 Limited. Still with Bradford. Red Bus sponsoring Charlton. Autoglass still with Chelsea. Subaru still with Coventry. EDS still with Derby. One to one still with it with uh, Everton. Green King sponsoring Ipswich. They are a large pub retailer and brewery. Uh, headquartered, I believe, in Suffolk. Yep. Uh, Leeds were sponsored by Strongbow, and that kit is quite iconic. Leicester still with Walkers, Liverpool still with Carlsberg. Uh, um, Idos, Edos, Edos, I think. Manchester City. Manchester United sponsored by Vodafone. So they've moved away from Sharp. It's now Vodafone. BT Cellnet with Middlesbrough. NTL with Newcastle, uh, just like Villa. Uh, Friends Providence still Southampton. Reg Vardy still Sunderland. Holston still Spurs. And Doc Martens still with West Ham. In terms of transfers, then, we start with Leeds United because, you know, why would you start with A when you can start with a team that begins with an L? Uh, Leeds brought in Rio Ferdinand, Olivier Decour, Mark Viduca, Dominic Matteo, Jacob Burns, and a couple of free transfers. Bradford City signed David Hopkin, Ashley Ward, Robert Molinar, Andy Todd, Ian Nolan, Billy McKinley, and on a free transfer, Stan Collymore. And the only memory I have of Collymore with Bradford is him scoring an incredible overhead kick, like late in the game on a Sunday or a Monday. Uh, don't remember much about his time there other than that. They also signed Benito Carboni, Dan Petrescu, and Peter Birgri on freeze, as well as Owen Jess in on loan. Owen Jess, I think I've talked about him before, was brilliant in Scotland, came south to the border and just didn't work for him at all. Uh, Leicester City, Gary Rowett, who's probably better known to many as a manager, Callum Davidson, Trevor Benjamin, Richard Cresswell, whose son Charlie now plays for Leeds, uh, Lee Marshall, Dean Sturridge, the uncle of Daniel Sturridge, who had been a really good lower league goal scorer for time, but Struggled to really transfer that to the Premier League. A couple of cheaper signings there as well. Coventry City, Craig Bellamy, David Thompson, Lee Carsley, now the manager of England's under-21s, Jay Boothroyd, John Hartson, Roland Nielsen. I don't remember John Hartson at Coventry, I have to say. Uh, And that's basically it. They sold Robbie Keane, which funded much of their... Spending. Manchester United signed Fabian Barthez after the Taibi and Bosnich pair didn't work. They went big game hunting and they came back with Fabian Barthez, who at the time was probably a top 
three top four goalkeeper in the world, had won the World Cup, had just won the Euros with France. It was a big, big get for United at the time. But they were still struggling to replace Peter Schmeichel. They also brought in a very old Andy Gorham on loan during the season due to some injuries. Uh, Newcastle signed Carl Court, Christian Besides, Lamana Lualoa, who was actually very talented but very frustrating, Andy O'Brien, Clarence Acuna, Wayne Quinn, and Carlos Daniel Cordone, who I don't remember. Carl Court was really talented. He was really highly regarded at this time. Kind of, I'd say he was probably 6'2", six, 6'3", six, quite thin, but very good with his feet, good on the ball. Looked like a really promising player, but unfortunately his career didn't work out the way it should have in terms of the level he got to. But he's still a good player, still a, a good Premier League player. But my favourite story involving Carl Court was an interview that was done by Shola Amiobi, who was promoted into the first team in the same year from the academy. And might not have been this season, might have been the next season. Bobby Robson was still manager because Bobby Robson is the key to the story. So Shola was been interviewed. It was his first kind of national interview. And he was doing quite well in, in the games he'd played. So the journalist was asking him, or the reporter was asking him questions, and he said, one of the questions was, do you have a nickname? And he said, no, I'm I'm just Shola. But what do your teammates call you? Oh, they call me Shola. And what do your friends and family call you? Oh, they just, everybody calls me Shola. I don't have a nickname. It's just Shola Amiobi. That's it. And what does Bobby Robson call you? Carl Court. So, you know, that's how that was. Um... Ipswich signed Herman Horiderson, Chris Mackin, Alan Armstrong, Nabil Abdullah, I don't remember him, uh, John Scales at the end of his career from Spurs. Uh, Middlesbrough signed Ugo Ekio, great signing at the time, tremendous defender. Christian Carambu, who was one of my favourite midfielders, he arrived. John Desiree Job was a good player, just didn't work out in the Premier League. Alan Boxich, who I loved, he arrived that year as well. Noel Whelan came in from Coventry. Dean Windass came in from Bradford. They signed Mark Crossley from Nottingham Forest. Mark Crossley, very good goalkeeper, very good storyteller. If you've got the time, just go on YouTube, Mark Crossley, Brian Clough stories, and you will howl with laughter. Um, Chelsea signed Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, Jesper Gronkjaer, Mario Stanic, Eider Gudjonsson, Slavisa Jokanovic, Carlo Cudicini, and Mark Bosnich on a free. They also that summer signed Winston Bogart on a free. And I mentioned a couple of days ago that Mario, might have been yesterday, Mario Melchiot was a bad free, free agent signing, but not the worst that they made. This is the worst that they made. Now you could argue for the Bosnich one just as easily, to be fair. They also brought in Christian Panucci on loan in this season. Uh, Aston Villa, Juan Pablo Angel, really good centre forward, just didn't click in the Premier League. Alpe Ozilin, I do not remember him. Do not remember him at all. Thomas Hitzelsberger signed as a as a youngster, tremendously talented, and obviously came out as gay once his playing career had finished and has been a big advocate for you know helping other players 
feel that they can actually be open and honest about who they are and, and you know, what, what they feel. Um, Steve Staunton went back to Aston Villa, Liverpool, Aston Villa, Liverpool, Aston Villa. Luke Nillis arrived from PSV and he was a really talented forward and then he had the most horrible leg break and it ended his career. They signed an old David Ginola, who's still a little bit left, Gilles de Bild and Gustavo Bartlett, who I don't remember. Um, Arsenal signed Sylvan Wiltord, Francis Jeffers, Igor Stepanov. There's a really mean story going around about him. I think it's Ray Parler that says it. It's, it's out of line. It doesn't need to be told. Um, they signed Thomas Danilovic. I, I don't remember him. Guy Demel. Most importantly, they signed Loren and they signed Robert Perez, who would be two of the key players in the in the Invincibles team. They sold Mark Overmars, sold Emmanuel Petit. This is just what Arsenal did. Um, West Ham signed Freddie Canute. Sorry, Freddie Canute. They signed Rigobert Song, Titi Kamara, Christian Daly, Ragnall Soma, Svetoslav Todorov. Don't remember him. Sebastian Schemmel. I do remember him. He wasn't great. Tom Williams, Ian Frewer, Christian Basilla. Don't remember him at all. Uh, let's move on. Charlton signed Klaus Jensen, Radistein Kisichev. Jonathan Johansson, I remember he had a kind of an Afro-type haircut. Um, very curly hair. Uh, Sean Bartlett, Mark Fish, Matthias Svensson, Karim Bagiri, Ben Roberts in from Middlesbrough. was a decent goalkeeper. Had some back problems. Sunderland signed Emerson Tomei. Julian Arca was a very, very good player. Would end up as a left-back. Was very talented. Don Hutchinson. Stanislav Varga, Tom Peters, Dean Shields. Manchester City signed Paolo Wanchop. They signed Richard Dunn, Darren Huckerby, Alfinga Haaland, Laurent Chavez, uh, Andre Konchalskis on loan, Carlo Nash, George Weah on a free, and Egil Olsenstad in on loan from Blackburn. Southampton signed Uwe Rossler, Richard Dryden. Don't remember a lot of these players coming in. But the looks thinks they signed Richard Dryden twice. They did. They signed him, sold him, and signed him back. Maybe they loaned him. I'm assuming they loaned him out a couple of times. Um, anyway... Tottenham signed Sergei Rebrov, Ben Thatcher, who I've talked about before, Stephen Ferguson and Neil Sullivan on a free from Wimbledon. Also brought in Andy Booth on loan from Sheffield Wednesday. Liverpool signed Christian Ziga. I was really excited when they got him because he'd been such a good left back, but just didn't work under Julier. Uh, Nicky Barnby was signed from Everton. The last, was he the last player? No, Abel Xavier would be the last player. Uh, Bernard Diame. Daniel Soyland, Gary McAllister, Gregory Vignol, Peggy Fixed, Marcus Babel, who is still the best player Liverpool have signed on a free. He was one of the best right backs in the world. He was incredible. And if he hadn't gotten sick, I think he'd be in the, the conversation of the best Premier League right backs of all time. 
Um, they signed Yari Litmanen, also on a free. Everton signed Alex Nyarko, didn't work out. Duncan Ferguson, they brought back from Newcastle. Alessandro Pistone, Nicholas Alexanderson, Steve Watson, Thomas Gravison, Stephen Hughes, Gary Naismith, Aiden Tal, I don't remember. I do remember the rest of them, but I don't remember him. This was actually quite an ambitious summer from Everton. They brought in three in midfield, Gravison, Hughes, and Nyarko. And Gravison's kind of the only one that really worked out. Pistone and Watson were to be their two new fullbacks. And to be fair, they were both decent enough. And Big Dunk brought back in in the hope that he'd score some goals, but he didn't really. They also signed Gaza on a free. Um, Georgie Kinkladze went to Derby. He'd been at City. They got relegated. He went to Ajax. So much fun. Came back to the Premier League with Derby. Uh, they sent Danny Higginbottom, Bjorn Otto Bragstead, Brian O'Neill, Tariba West in on loan. OGs will remember Trebo West. And that is it. They are our Premier League transfers. So, Manchester United win the title, completing three in a row, which is a huge achievement. Three in a row is a massive, massive achievement that has has rarely been done in the history of English football. And no city have just completed it. But... It is a big achievement to do three in a row. Like when we look back at the history of English football and the first league championship is in 1988, sorry, 1888, 89. Villa win four and five between 1895 and 1900. But the first team to do three in a row is Huddersfield. In 1923-24, 1924-25, and 1925-26. Then Arsenal do it in 1932-33, 33-34, and 34-35. And then it doesn't happen again, I believe, until Liverpool do it in 81-82, 82-83, and 83-84. So near 50 years. It is 50 years. It is actually 50 years. Liverpool were the first team to do it in 50 years and only the third team to do it ever. So this United team, I know they'd won four and five to begin the Premier League, but this was the first team to win the three in a row since Liverpool had done it in the 80s, only the fourth team to ever do it. United would do it again under Ferguson and now City have done it. And that's it. That's your history of it. So it's been done six times. It's a huge achievement to do three in a row. A huge achievement. And City deserve huge amounts of credit for doing it. But when United did it, they did it in a way that people were more comfortable with, I suppose. Um, But City could well do four in a row this year, which hasn't been done. And I, I would be fairly certain they will do four in a row I I don't see anybody stopping them Um, and four in a row will be an amazing achievement something nobody's done before and something that might not be done again for another hundred years 
Arsenal finished second, 10 points behind. Again, as with the previous season, Arsenal are rebuilding step by step. They don't have the money to go out and spend huge amounts. They have to sell to buy. It's just the way Arsenal have been for a long time, up until recently, apparently. Uh, Liverpool finished third, one point behind Arsenal. Leeds finished fourth. Ipswich Town finish in fifth place in their first season back in the division. They finish three points behind Liverpool. Three points off the Champions League spots. An amazing achievement. Chelsea finish sixth, Sunderland seventh, Villa eighth, Charlton in their first season back finish ninth, Southampton tenth, Newcastle 11th, Tottenham 12th, Leicester, Middlesbrough, West Ham, Everton and Derby round out 13 through 17 and 14 through 17 all finished on 42 points. And going down, we have Manchester City, we have Coventry City and we have Bradford City. So all of the cities heading down um, for a bit of the uh, relegation. And Coventry, unfortunately for them, it was to be the start of of their troubles. They were a team that had been in the top flight since the 67-68 season. It was the first time they'd ever been promoted to the top flight. They'd been yo-yoing between Divisions 2 and 3 for a long time. They finally find their way into the top flight in 67, 68, and they stay there for over 30 years, which is an amazing achievement. But since then, they have not been back up. They've been in what we now call the championship for a long, long time. I think they spent 12, 11 years in the championship. Then they got relegated to what's now League One. They spent five years there. They got relegated to League Two. They got promoted back to League One in the year 2000. They've been in the championship since. And obviously in this past year, they very, very nearly came back up into the Premier League, only to be pipped by Luton. Coventry are one of the teams I really want to see back in the Premier League. Obviously, we know that Manchester City have been promoted back and are, are a dominant force now. Uh, As for Bradford, they were relegated and have yet not come back up. And they're another cautionary tale, bad ownership, financial issues. They've been, they were in the championship for three years. They got relegated to League One. They spent quite a bit of time in League Two. They came back up into League One. They're now a League Two team and... They don't look much like a side who are going to reappear in the Premier League anytime soon. Um, They're managed by Mark Hughes, which, you know, considering he was a Premier League manager for a long time, is is pretty good uh, for them. But, you know, they got to the playoffs of League Two last season and and weren't able to come back up to, to League One. I'd like to see them back in the higher levels, you know, whether it's the Premier League or even the Championship. 
I do think Bradford are a good club. I think they're an important club as well. I think for the city of Bradford, it's really important that that club do well. They've had a rough time with it because for a while they had Bradford in the Premier League and the Bradford Bulls were, if not the dominant team in Super League, one of the dominant teams for a spell when they had, you know, Henry Paul, Robbie Paul, James Lowe, people like that. Um, it was them, Wigan, St. Helens, obviously then Leeds and St. Helens kind of took over. Wigan have come back well and, and they're strong again. But Bradford in the 90s were, they were the team I followed in Super League and they were so much fun to watch. Playing at Oddsall, which is a decrepit, run-down place now, but they were just they were a tremendous team to watch. They always had great players. They had Justin Harris for a while as well. Great, great players. Anyway, off track. Um, yeah, Bradford now in League Two and not looking like making a reappearance in the Premier League. Like I say, Coventry came very, very close to getting back up. Uh, Manchester United, like I said, won the league. They were they were really good and they were dominant. And to be fair, the only reason the gap at the top was 10 points was because United just took their foot off the gas. They lost their last three games to Derby, Southampton and Spurs. All games they could very easily have won. Derby finished 17th, Southampton finished 10th, and Spurs were 12th. United, had they needed or wanted to, would have won all three of those very, very comfortably. Prior to that, they'd only lost three games. Scored 79, most in the division, conceded 31, least in the division. They were they were a dominant Premier League team. Now, it didn't translate into Europe for them that year. They went out in the quarterfinals, but, you know, those... It was a very strong team. Barthez in goal, Neville and Irwin... Still the fullbacks. Stam got hurt that year and they still looked pretty untouchable. Um, you had Wes Brown stepping up. Mikel Sylvester played a lot of centre back for them that year as well. You had Beckham, Keane, Scholes, Giggs, Butt in that midfield group. Phil Neville played a lot as well, filling in largely for Irwin, who was on the downside at that point. Uh, York. Solskjaer and Cole and Sheringham, obviously, rotating up front. Sheringham was their top scorer that season. And that was the Premier League. In the Golden Boot race, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, top with 23. Marcus Stewart of Ipswich, second with 19. Then you had Henri and Viduka with 17. Michael Owen with 16. Sheringham with 15. Heskey, Kevin Phillips, both got 14. Alan Boxage got 12. And James Beattie got 10. Patricks, uh, one chop for Manchester City against Sunderland. Michael Owen for Liverpool against Aston Villa. Emil Heskey scored a perfect hat trick for Liverpool in a Super Sunday game against Derby County. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank got four in a 6 1 win for Chelsea over Coventry. Teddy Sheringham against Southampton. Mark Viduka scored all four goals in a 4-3 Leeds win against Liverpool. A horrible game. I still remember it. I hate, still hate him. 
Um, Les Ferdinand got a perfect hat trick, perfect hat trick in a three 0 win for Spurs over Leicester. Ray Parler got a hat trick. I assume the only one of his career in an Arsenal win over Newcastle. Henri got one against Leicester. Kevin Phillips got one against Bradford. Dwight York got one against Arsenal in a six one win. Sylvan Wiltord scored a hat trick for Arsenal against West Ham. Marcus Stewart scored a hat trick against Southampton. And Michael Owen got his second of the season against Newcastle. Uh, David Beckham, top assister with 12. Nobby Solano with 10. Hasselbank, Henri and Schmitzer all with 9. Giggs and Graham Stewart with 8. Stephen Clements, Paolo De Canio and Hassan Kashlul with 7. Hassan Kashlul of Southampton. Manager of the month. Uh, Bobby Robson in August. Peter Taylor in September, Arsene Wenger in October, George Burley in November, Peter Reid in December, Terry Venables in January, Alex Ferguson in February, and David O'Leary in March and April. George Burley voted Manager of the Year, and rightly so, an incredible achievement. Players of the Month, Alan Smith in August, Tim Flowers in September, Teddy Sheringham in October, Paul Robinson of Leeds in November, James Beatty in December, Robbie Keane in January, Stuart Pearce in February, Stephen Gerrard in March, and Gary McAllister in April. Three Leeds players winning Player of the Month awards. So Patrick Vieira was voted the Premier League Player of the Season. Teddy Sheringham was voted both PFA Player of the Year and Football Writers Player of the Year in a rather strange... It's another one of those where ballots were handed out in December and put back in, and Sheringham was having a really good season because he really wasn't the Footballer of the Year that year. He just wasn't. Uh, Stephen Gerrard was voted Young Player of the Year. Your team of the season, Fabian Bartes, Stephen Carr... Yapstam. Yapstam played 15 games in the league. 15. And was voted in the team of the season. Again, ballots going in at the wrong time. Uh, Wes Brown, Silvino of Arsenal, Steven Gerrard, Roy Keane, Patrick Vieira and Ryan Giggs. That's a hell of a midfield. Uh, Teddy Sheringham and Thierry Henry up front. Um, I would have made the case that Vieira should have won Player of the Year that year. He won the Premier League Player of the Season. He he should have swept the board. Vieira was the best player in England that year. There was no doubt. Sheringham got it because he had a hot couple of months in the season. Uh, he scored 21 goals in all competitions, but he wasn't the Footballer of the Year. Um, FA Cup and League Cup. So, FA Cup final... One of the more dramatic FA Cup finals that we've had took place at Cardiff because Wembley was being knocked to be rebuilt into what we have as Wembley today. This was the first final to be played in Cardiff and it would stay in Cardiff for a while and Liverpool would kind of make it a home for themselves. Liverpool win the game 2-1. Arsenal dominate. Arsenal are so far the better team in this game, it's not even funny. And Freddie Lundberg finally breaks down the Liverpool defence on 72 minutes to give Arsenal the first goal. 
my sister made her communion this day. And I remember watching this game with my uncle George, who's an Arsenal fan. And he was so excited when Lundberg scored and so miserable by the end, because on 83, Michael Owen scored and on 88, Michael Owen scored again and Liverpool win 2-1. And it's unjust for Arsenal, but it doesn't matter. Liverpool have won the FA Cup. Liverpool's team on the day, Sander Westerfeld, Marcus Babel, Sammy Hippia, Stefan Ancho, Jamie Carragher. Danny Murphy, Stephen Gerrard, Didi Haman, Vladimir Schmitzer, Emil Heskey, and Michael Owen. On the bench, Peggy Fick said Gregory Vignal, Patrick Berger, Gary McAllister, and Robbie Fowler. Berger came on for Murphy. Fowler came on for Schmitzer. McAllister came on for Haman. The Arsenal team, which is quite a funny-looking lineup. Five English players, one Swede, and five five French players. All of the English players are the goalkeeper and back four. All of the French players are in midfield and attack. A thing of beauty. Uh, you had David Seaman in goal, Lee Dixon right back, Martin Keown left, sorry, Martin Keown and Tony Adams in the centre, Ashley Cole at left back, Lundberg on the right of midfield, Perez on the left of midfield, Grimandi and Vieira in the centre of the park. Sylvan Wiltord and Thierry Henry up front. On the bench, Alex Manninger, Loren, Ray Parler, Dennis Burkamp and Nuanku Kanu. Parler came on for Wiltord just after the goal. Wenger trying to see it out. Um, Kanu came on for Lumberg after the first Liverpool goal, trying to re-establish a bit of attacking impetus. And then Dennis Burkamp came on in the last minute when Liverpool were 2-1 up. If I remember correctly, Burkamp was injured, and that's why he didn't start. Um, obviously, Arsene Wenger and Jared Hooley were the respective managers. It was a great, great day to be a Liverpool fan. A great, great week, in truth, to be a Liverpool fan. Because Liverpool had gotten third place in the Premier League. Or sorry, I tell a lie. Liverpool would get third place in the Premier League. This was Saturday the 12th. If I'm not mistaken, my memory's generally good, but... Yeah, so this is Liverpool's week, okay? They beat Arsenal in the cup final on a Saturday. On the Wednesday, they travelled to Dortmund and they beat... Alaves, 5-4, with a golden goal in extra time to win the UEFA Cup and complete a cup treble. We'll come back to that. And then, on the next weekend, final day of the season, Liverpool go in, needing a win to confirm themselves in the Champions League. They go to Charlton, And beat them 4-0. Fowler gets two, including an overhead kick. Danny Murphy and Michael Owen with the goals. And it rounds off a pretty perfect season for Liverpool. Three trophies and Champions League football secured. 
The third of the trophies, obviously, was the at the League Cup, known then as the Worthington Cup. The final had taken place back in February. I should have done that one first. Um, Liverpool beat Birmingham City on penalties, making it very awkward for themselves all season. They win three cups, none of them easy. Birmingham were a championship team. Liverpool should have won that game comfortably. They didn't. It went to penalties. Arsenal, they left it really late to come from behind and get two goals to win the game. And then in the UEFA Cup final, Alaves was a team they should have absolutely wiped the floor with. And instead, they stumbled and bumbled and put themselves in awkward positions and really made things tough for themselves. Like they were 2-0 up. Then they were 2-1. Then it was 3-1. Then it was 3 all. Then it was 4-3. And then in the 88 minute, Jordi Cruyff scored to make it 4-4. Liverpool didn't seem to want to win silverware that year, but they just happened to stumble into it. Uh, the League Cup. Fowler scores on 30 minutes. It's a great goal. Uh, they give away a stupid penalty in the last minute and Darren Purse steps up and scores. No, no goal in extra time, so we go to penalties. McAllister scores. Granger misses. Barnby scores, Purse scores, Ziga scores, Marcelo scores. Didi Hammond, who you would have bet your life on, misses. Lazarita scores, Fowler scores, Hughes scores, Carragher scores, and Andy Johnson, who is one of the more dislikable uh, players of the last 30 years. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he was just a dislikable player. Like Vardy, but not as good. Um... He misses and Liverpool win. And that's it. That is our 2000-2001 season. As a Liverpool fan, this is one of the greatest seasons that I've experienced. This was amazing this season. Three Cups, top three finish. Didn't care about United winning three in a row. Didn't care about it. Because we won three trophies. And we felt like if it came down to it in a one-off game, we could have beaten them. Um, I mentioned how United were the fourth team to do three in a row. Ferguson was the first manager to oversee three in a row. Um, Liverpool had changed managers from Bob Paisley to Joe Fagan after the second of their three. Their three. Arsenal... I believe Herbert Chapman was the first year. He passed away in the middle of the second year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he passed away in the middle of the second season. Joe Shaw took over as caretaker and he won. And then George Allison um, managed them in the third year. For Huddersfield, Herbert Chapman, again, was the manager for the first two. And he left... And Cecil Potter took over and he won the third in a row. Um, Chapman left Huddersfield, obviously, for Arsenal after winning back-to-back titles. Died so young, he's only 55. One of the great managers. Credited with four league titles because he... No, he's credited with 40 titles because he won four. He should have been credited with five 
Should have been, he should be credited with five league titles. He won one at Arsenal, then they didn't win, and then they started the three-in-a-row run. So he should be credited with five league titles. He also won two FA Cups, one with Huddersfield and one with Arsenal. Obviously, there was that bronze bust of him that used to stand in the entranceway of Highbury, um, which is is iconic. Uh, right, that is it. That is our season. Uh, Ipswich, the big overperformers, but also I think very fair to say that Charlton, Finishing ninth was a great achievement. Sunderland, who were in their second season in the division, finishing in seventh was a tremendous achievement, especially considering they'd been seventh the year before and a lot of people thought that they would drop off, but they didn't. So very, very impressive there. Obviously, you know, United winning the treble is the big story regarding the Premier League year, but City going straight back down, Coventry going down. Coventry going down was the toughest of them because City had only just come up and Bradford weren't long in the division, but Coventry were were a staple. And obviously they've been through the ringer since with all the nonsense over the stadium and different ownership groups. And it's just all been a very, very bad situation for Coventry fans. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully Mark Robbins can bring them back up. If not next season, then maybe the season after. He's done incredible work since taking over a League Two team, had them to the brink of the Premier League. So we'll give him another couple of years, I think, and, and hopefully he'll get it, get them where they need to be. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we will do the gossip, any little bits of news. So I will see you after this. Right. Welcome back. So uh, bits of news. Manchester United have agreed a fee of 43.8 million with 3.4 in add-ons for Andre Onana of Inter Milan. Uh, I think it's a significant overpay, but you know, that is how it is. Uh, Ryan Giggs has been cleared of all charges in his court case against his ex-girlfriend and her sister. Uh, charges were withdrawn by the Crown Prosecution Services. Giggs has always denied assault and controlling her coercive behaviour towards Kate Greville and assaulting her sister Emma. Judge Hilary Manley directed that he was not guilty on all three counts. Um, he was initially tried last year. Was it last year or earlier this year? And the jurors failed to reach a verdict. The retrial had been set to start at the end of this month. But now that will not happen. Um, I don't really know what, what to say, so I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to move on. Um, Ilkay Gundogan says he still has a lot to prove, having been unveiled as Barcelona's new signing. Declan Rice can be a lighthouse, says Mikel Arteta. Uh, defensively, he often is. Yeah, absolutely stuck in the mud. Um, Hamden Park aims to be in the running to host a UEFA club competition final in 2026 or 2027. So as things stand, for 2026, the Champions League could be in Budapest or Milan. At the San Siro. Now, that is that the last season of the San Siro? Because if it is, that's probably where they'll put it. Um, they're also hoping they might get the, the Women's Champions League final. Uh, Gelschenkirchen, Munich and Stuttgart have all put in. 
um, as have Stadium in Oslo and Hamden Park itself. Then the Europa League final, it would be Dusseldorf, Frankfurt, Gelsenkirchen, Leipzig, Stuttgart, Bucharest, Hamden or Istanbul. Three stadiums in Istanbul vying for that one. And then the Europa Conference League, Leipzig, uh, the Teddy Stadium in Jerusalem. I do not see it taking place there. Uh, Oslo again, Hamden, and Geneva. Mm. They tend to play that at a smaller stadium. I guess they're going to try and ramp it up. It'll be interesting to see if they get either. They, they, I mean, Hamden's a great place. It's a little bit run down, but they are planning to, you know, to improve it. But it is a great place to go and watch a game. Uh, Willian has signed a one-year deal with Fulham. 49ers Enterprises have been approved to take over as the owners and controllers of Leeds United. And into the gossip we go. Harry Kane does not want to join Paris Saint-Germain, but is believed to be open to move to Bayern Munich. That is what I expected to be the case. Tottenham could make a move for Ivan Tony if Kane leaves the club. This is football transfers. It's Steve K. It's definitely lies. Um, PSG, pres- PSG president Nasir Al-Khalifi will come face-to-face with Kylian Mbappe for the first time since the 24-year-old sent a letter to the club saying you would not be extending his deal. I, I do love the idea of Mbappe actually handwriting a letter. I think that's tremendous stuff. Uh, Chelsea will make an improved bit of more than 70 million for Moises Caicedo. They've offered 70 million. It's been turned down. So we'll have to wait and see what happens on that one. Marcus Rashford is set to sign a new contract with Manchester United till 2028, which would be worth 325,000. I'm surprised it's not more uh, just because they always overpay. United are ready to step up their interest in Rasmus Hoysland. Okay, I mean, he's very unproven. Big, big bust factor or bust potential. Huge upside. If it, if it works, he could be great. But he's very young and very unproven. And he's, this would be his fourth club, and he's only 20 years of age. Fourth professional club. Um, West Ham have had a £45 million bid for Joe Polina rejected. And they will now try and sign Harry Maguire on loan. Someone take away David Moyes' telephone access. West Ham have joined Manchester United and looking at Leon Goretzka. He'd be a very Manchester United signing. Past his best, injury prone, overpriced. Inter Milan are expected to bid about £34 million for Fowler and Balogun. I really don't think they are. I think you've taken that fee because that's what they bid for Lukaku. Uh, Brighton are leading Burnley and Leicester in the race sign Cole Palmer. He doesn't make sense for Brighton. He really doesn't make any sense for Brighton. Brighton are set to beat Fulham to the signing of Fiorentina's 25-year-old Brazilian defender Igor uh, really good left-footed defender, so he'd make a lot of sense for them to replace what they've lost in Levi Colwell. Burnley and Leicester, along with Sheffield United, are keen on a loan deal for Ahmed Diallo of Manchester United. They'd all make sense for him. Wolverhampton Wanderers are in talks to sign Nico Elvedi from Borussia Mönchengladbach. Five years ago, he looked like he was going to become a top, top defender. He's good, but he hasn't developed. Uh, Leeds have agreed a deal with Chelsea for Ethan Ampadu. I, I love this move and I hope they play him in midfield. I really want to see him used as a defensive midfielder. He's only 22. He's really young. 
Saudi Arabian club Al Nazir will rival Aston Villa for the signing of Moussa Diaby. I have a feeling that a lot of the Saudi clubs are going to start getting used. When clubs are trying to sell a player but trying to get a certain price, I think they'll start using some of the Saudi clubs as leverage. Nottingham Forest have opened talks at Manchester United over a permanent deal for Dean Henderson, which makes some sense. Newcastle are interested in signing Jamal Lewis on loan from Newcastle. Sorry, Watford are interested in signing him on loan from Newcastle. He needs out of Newcastle, and I hope I hope he gets that move. Uh, West Ham's Jamaican striker Mikel Antonio has held preliminary talks with Al Etifak, who are obviously the team trying to sign Jordan Henderson at the moment. So hopefully both of those deals go through. Uh, right, there we go. That's it. That's all I've got for today, folks. Thank you, as always. I will speak to you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.